Hi, my name is Christine, and I'm your host for the Baitsono podcast. Ding! Hey, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Um, welcome back, fellow listeners. Welcome, new listeners. Thank you for tuning in. This is episode four of season two of the podcast. Slowly chugging along, they say. Um, before I get into things, I want to say, um, I want to say happy maple syrup day. I was informed earlier that that does exist. Truly, there is a national holiday for everyone and everything in 2019. So to those who are, the, you know, a big fan of maple syrup, today's your day, man. For this episode, I had a really great opportunity to speak with a clinical psychologist, Dr. Jade Wu. I came across the Savvy Psychologist podcast earlier last year. Uh, I think I binged binged listened to the majority of the episodes within like a day or two unlike typical podcasts her episodes are between like 15 30 minutes so uh, it was very very easy to just watch them consecutively uh, my favorites were how to survive as a night owl in a nine to five world for those of you who know me i don't really sleep usually um uh, another good one is what to do when nothing feels good uh, my third favorite one was five facts about anxiety or hangover-induced anxiety. That is a good one to listen to and keep some tips and tricks in the back pocket there if you have some late nights out. Um, I fell in love with how informative and digestible the episodes were. I listened to them during my commute, um, early in the morning while I was getting ready and just during my downtime. I highly recommend you guys check out the Savvy Psychologist podcast. She's on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and much more, I believe. And recently I saw I saw the podcast featured on Spotify's uh, category page under lifestyle and health. So that's a big deal. Congrats, Dr. Wu. So for today's podcast, uh, I picked... Dr. Wu's brain about something called imposter syndrome. It's not considered a diagnosis within the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Essentially, it's like the Bible of all psychological disorders. Um, yeah, it's, it's not within the DSM, but I see a lot among my friends, myself, and a lot of people who are just, you know, professionals kind of resonate with it. Or even, just, you know, forget it. Like everyone I talk to seem to resonate with it and to some degree. So without getting into it too far, um, imposter syndrome is described as a psychological pattern in which someone doubts their accomplishments and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. And this is uh, despite external evidence of their competence. Um, those experiencing this phenomenon remain unconvinced that they are frauds and do not deserve all that they achieve. Wow. Do any of you guys resonate with this? Because I do. So without further ado, this is Dr. Jade Wu's episode. Enjoy, guys. Hi, Dr. Wu. Hi, happy to be here. Thank you for being here. I heard you had a really busy day today. Yeah, yeah. A happy, productive, busy Saturday in the private practice. 
There you go. See, so everyone, this is Dr. Jade Wu. I've been a huge fan of the Savvy Psychologist podcast for a while, and she's the current host for the podcast. Um, I'm definitely going to link your podcast in the description box, if that's okay with you, Dr. Wu. Sure, of course. Yeah, and um, so the main reason why I have you on today, Doc, um, a lot of students, students my age, undergrad students, post-undergrad students, um, there's this strange phenomenon that I came across, I want to say maybe two, three years ago, and I don't think it's formally a diagnosis. I'm not too sure. You can correct me a little bit later, but I'm not sure if it's a self-esteem issue or, or if it's related to like anxiety or anything like that. But even within like popular culture and social media, the term mm-hmm. imposter syndrome has been thrown around. Considering that you are a clinical psychologist, am I correct? Yes. So, uh, Doc, could you tell us a little bit more about what imposter syndrome is? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. And actually, I'm also a good person to ask because I've had plenty of imposter syndrome myself. Mm -hmm. So I can speak both professionally and very personally to the experience. Yeah. Um, So, imposter syndrome is a is a is not a official diagnosis of a mental health problem. But it's something that is enough of a phenomenon that's common enough that I think we can talk about it um, as its own thing. And basically what it refers to is a sense of not belonging or self-doubt about like being a fraudulent person in a certain context. So for example, Um, maybe a student feels like they are the dumbest person in the class or that they somehow fooled the admissions committee into accepting them into the school um, and they don't actually belong there or deserve to be there. Um, Maybe someone is on, you know, on a team at work and they feel like, you know, how did I, how did I squeak through? They're going to find out soon Mm -hmm. that I don't actually belong here. So that's really what imposter syndrome is and and the important thing to know about it is that it doesn't reflect actual ability mm-hmm. it really reflects an anxiety and this um you know unhelpful set of beliefs that the person has about themselves yeah i think um just what i briefly read online and just through my own research mm-hmm. it definitely seems to be I, I guess people describe it as like a a pattern of thinking Again, like uh, like you said, you experienced it yourself, and I've definitely had instances during my undergraduate degree where I did have those feelings as well, mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure if it was related to that, you know, the way I was raised, um, like whatever's going around around me, like social factors, and maybe the the, the setting of school. People are we learn this behavior over time. Do you guys know in the field of psychology where it comes from or like the power, how the, how the pattern starts? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, because it's not a formal diagnostic category, there's not so much, you know, research literature on it, but there is a, a body of, of research. And Hmm. so imposter syndrome, um, so I I like that you call refer to it as a behavior as well because it's not just a pattern of thinking it's a pattern of behaving. Yeah. So for example, you can think of someone who you know internally feels like oh I don't belong here you know I'm not smart enough to be in this class and they'll 
have behaviors too that reflect that, like not participating in discussions or when they do participate, they will sort of hedge, you know, what they say, like, oh, I don't really know if this is right, but I will second guess themselves. Exactly. Second guess themselves, qualify their opinions, um, you know, not volunteer for leadership positions, take a backseat. So all, all of these behaviors reflect this lack of confidence or this uh, fear of being found out that you, know, you don't really belong. Um, and in terms of where it comes from, I think that's a really interesting question. I bet it comes from a, a range of different places. Yeah. So one is one possibility is that someone has been told throughout their life that they they're not good enough. They don't belong. They um, they're not meant to do great things. And mm-hmm. it really makes me sad when I hear stories like that because, yeah. you know, like if if someone's parents or someone's um, you know uh, environment is not supportive when they're a kid, then it's really hard for them to get out of that habit of thinking because it's so ingrained into them. And people might internalize that so much yeah. that they don't even realize they're doing it. They they may not even know that they have imposter syndrome. They just yeah. take it for granted that they um, you know are are barely squeaking by or they just got lucky or or yeah. whatever. So and and I think you know we'll probably talk a little bit about um you know, whether different groups of people have different rates of mm-hmm, imposter syndrome, exactly. cultural factors and things like that. Yeah. But just to jump the gun a little bit, I think mm-hmm. culture can play a role. Um, and so, for example, I'm Asian and um, you, you're you probably maybe also familiar with maybe like cultural gaps between oh um, dr wu i am vietnamese i know exactly Uh, what you're talking about yeah (laughs) yeah i think we're probably products of not only generational gaps but that you know multiplied by also cultural gap with our parents with our grandparents with you know other people in our communities and you know, I, I don't know if in Vietnamese culture it's the same way, but in Chinese culture, there's very much of like, a, you know, you encourage someone to improve by criticizing and telling them what they can do better, exactly. but you kind of withhold praise and you don't want to like, you know, blow up someone's ego too much. That's the exactly. idea. So then kids don't receive a lot of um, positive encouragement or positive um, praise or reinforcement. Yeah, exactly. And that might work if everybody around you was raised that way. But yeah. if you're if you're raised that way, but you're plopped into the middle of a society where um, other kids are taught from a young age to be confident about their abilities and mm-hmm. to express their own confidence, then that um, that cultural gap can can be really keenly felt because. Yeah you're like, wow, everyone else is walking around so confident and I'm not feeling it. That yeah. must mean that I'm not as good as them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I can definitely speak for it. Um, and I've, I've talked about like my upbringing, my childhood mm-hmm. quite openly on the podcast in uh-huh. the sense that Vietnamese parents, my parents came here from Vietnam. I want to say like mid nineties around there, early nineties. Uh-huh. And uh, my dad, He's um, both my parents have warmed up over the years, but as a kid growing up, it was very authoritative in terms of parenting mm. style. 
um, yeah. withholding of praise, huge. Yeah. Uh, Father has yet to tell me he's proud of me. <laughs> so oh, it's, but, but, but he shows that in other ways, Doc. Like, like yeah. he's over the years, I think Asian parents, I don't want to just stereotype Asian parents. Like when we, when I say Asian, like a lot of my Indian friends, a lot of my friends um, from Arabic cultures also kind of relate to this too. Like parenting uh, yeah. in our side of the world is a little bit different. Right. Yeah. Um, and growing up, you know, let's say I competed at a piano competition. I, I got mm-hmm. second, I got first, no matter which placement I got in the ranks my parents never really acknowledged saying hey good job because the accomplishment was already expected (laughs) so you're meeting you're meeting a standard rather than exceeding the standard so praise is not really called for um the standard moves right like it moves higher and higher yeah Yeah. so you're always playing catch-up yeah yeah and it, it definitely like it looking back retrospectively it definitely does shape the way I see mm-hmm. myself, uh, I, how mm-hmm. I see my accomplishments. So um, that's why, and, and like once I start talking to other um, friends of mine of Asian culture, of whatever culture it is even, mm-hmm. um, in university, they kind of express the same things. It's like everybody, once you grow up, you realize, you know, when you're a kid, you look at an adult, they seem so secure and confident in themselves. Sure. But when you become an adult, you also realize that like, everyone is also a little bit insecure about <laughs> something. And, yeah. um, and a lot of my friends, again, successful graduate university students, but they have this strange self-limiting mindset that, okay, yeah. uh, I'm not good enough in this moment or like, do I even deserve to be at this university right yeah. now? Do I did I did I deserve getting to medical school? It's very strange. Exactly. Um, yeah, that yeah. is a very very common phenomenon. And in fact, I was just looking at some research on medical students. Speaking of, you know, you mentioned that. Yeah. And it turns out that a lot of medical students feel imposter syndrome. That's crazy. And guess what the rates are for female versus male students. I assume it's higher, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) It's about about 50% of female students feel it and about 24% of males. So double. Um, And, but, but even among male medical students, that's still a lot. A full quarter of them think or fear at least sometimes that they don't belong there, that they shouldn't have gotten in and fully half of female students feel that way. And so that means quite a big chunk of medical students don't feel like they belong there. And meanwhile, you know, the medical schools are very selective and, you know, they, they accepted them for, for some reason, right? They they met, Um, they exceeded the standard. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, and also going back to the cultural point, I, yeah, I think your experience is so common. Um, and, and I can relate to that as, as an Asian, you know, first generation immigrant too. Uh, And I also think that uh, it, imposter syndrome affects other minority groups, but maybe in different ways. So for example, Mm -hmm. um, in sort of historically more oppressed and underrepresented groups, like underrepresented in higher education, for example, um, like black and Hispanic, um, uh, you know, background ethnicity, young people, they might they also have a high rate of feeling imposter syndrome. I, I read in another study that it's about 50% or more of uh, Black and Hispanic uh, university students 
you know, have imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, and it's for them, I wonder if the mechanism is a little different where, uh, because historically they've been underrepresented in higher mm-hmm. education and in sort of higher level roles and yeah. leadership roles and politicians and, and these sort of role models, then it's almost like, well, historically, people who look like me didn't belong, like actually did not belong in these yeah. institutions. So of course I don't either. Yeah. So for them, it's not so much of maybe like a, like a cultural parents didn't support the self-esteem thing, yeah. but rather society as a whole does not support exactly. their confidence. Yeah, I like once you said that, because one of my friends, he's he's African Canadian. Uh-huh. And uh really I met him, I met him in like second year of undergrad, I think. Very intelligent uh-huh. guy, very intelligent. He was an engineering. Um he always like he always like talked about his not I want to say his grades, but the, kind of his performance in school being uh-huh. like oh yeah like oh you must be so much uh, all, all the asian engineers are so much better than me and mm-hmm. and like even when you look at the demographic of i guess mcmaster engineering program it's uh-huh. a lot of it are like the asian students and like a good a good mix of like um i guess white and european as well but in terms of like just just like black the blacks and hispanics it's much less when it comes to the demographic of the 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 student body even even the university body in general so i can definitely see what you mean it's like it's it's a matter of representation and seeing yourself in the the the, the status quo rather than um i'm sure his parents are very encouraging growing up because he he seemed to have a really loving family (laughs) so isn't it ironic that you can have two totally opposite sort of social um, cultural set of factors, but end up with the same imposter syndrome. Like yeah. either you're like the model minority who everybody uh, expects to excel and be perfect and, and do really well, yeah. uh, or you're the the type of minority where people, you know, are have negative stereotypes about your performance and don't expect you to do well. And both ways, you end up feeling like I don't belong. <laughs> you know? so it's yeah. it's just. So it's so interesting. And one other thing I, I learned through um, my literature search about this that was yeah. really fascinating is that for Black and Hispanic students, having low ethnic identity predicted higher imposter syndrome um, symptoms. So what do you mean by that, Doc? Yeah. So, so ethnic identity uh like you can feel very much like uh, you identify with a certain group and you feel like you belong in that group and that the group belonging in that group um, is a big part of your identity. Um, And, or you can sort of not feel as closely associated or not feel like this part of your identity is very important. So um, I guess I think people have various reasons for being along that spectrum of how much they identify with their uh, racial or ethnic group, and for some reason, low ethnic identity uh, identity uh, is associated with with higher imposter syndrome, at least among Black and Hispanic students hmm. um, entering college or university. So, I I'm not sure why that is. Um, so, but I yeah, I, like my like how I would kind of play that in my life, kind of using like kind of understanding it through my lens. Um, so I guess 
Okay, let's say as an Asian person, I don't really identify with Asian culture. Would would Mm -hmm. that be considered the low ethnicity, like you mentioned? Yeah, low ethnic identity. So I can definitely imagine how it's like, if I don't fit in with my Asian identity, nor the identity of my friends, let's say white, um, Uh Indian or whatever it is, Uh you kind of have this identity problem already. And Uh it's like, I'm not even Asian. So how can I be good at whatever that is? That's possible. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like a double whammy where you, you don't even have, an, you don't even identify as anything. So you don't really identify with anything in terms of um, yeah. the representation that's in the media or in, in the university or profession or whatever yeah. it is. That's really yeah, interesting. I can definitely imagine that for sure. Mm-hmm. Thanks yeah. for looking at, thanks for pulling up like recent <laughs> literature. Like this is amazing. You, oh, you're really cool. prepared for this. So it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> I was going to say well, you're I a scientist. I don't know what, what I didn't expect. Oh, thank you for doing that <laughs> it's my pleasure yeah. that's yep. why you that's why ladies and gentlemen you call an expert onto the show here. <laughs> um and like you mentioned it's it's one of those things where uh it's so i feel within myself and i'm sure you do too it's it's such a self-limiting behavior because you'd be more uh, more reluctant to speak up during group conversation, let's say, or if you accomplish something, you're less willing to share it. So um, based on just your experience uh, with, with patients or with yourself and what you've learned, uh, mm-hmm. what are like the daily implications? What other implications does imposter syndrome have on someone's life? Could you think of that? Sure. Yeah. So imposter syndrome is associated with lower self-esteem, more anxiety and depression symptoms, um, just generally lower psychological well-being. Although I should say it's, it, it's hard to say which direction it goes in. Like, is it lower self-esteem and greater depression anxiety leads to more de- uh, imposter syndrome or imposter syndrome leads more to depression anxiety? Yeah. And I'm guessing it's a bi-directional thing that it can kind of can feed back and forth. Exactly. Um, and, and sort of on a very practical functional level, just from my personal experience, I know that having imposter syndrome can stop you from taking opportunities or make you second guess yourself in opportunities. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think I've been part aspects of my personality have always made me be like really active and really like a go getter, whether it's driven by anxiety or driven by passion or both, uh, you know, hard to say. Um, so, I want to say that imposter syndrome hasn't stopped me too much, but sometimes I catch myself thinking like during grad school, I would apply, I would apply to awards or grants or, um, you know, teaching posts or whatever. And I would, as I'm applying, I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to get this. Like, why would they want me? You know, I, this is such a long shot. Um, but I do it anyway, just out of a sense of like, ah, I should, you know, and then I end up getting them. Not, not all the time. Sure. But like, for example, during grad school, during my last year of grad school, I taught a writing seminar. Uh, I taught a freshman writing seminar. Yeah. Um, so, so really it's like a very writing intensive, um, class where I had to design it and 
I got to teach like a psychology topic, but really yeah. the, the point of the course was to teach first year university students how to write academic essays well. And meanwhile, I'm like a first generation uh, immigrant. I learned English at the age of 10, you know, when I'm <laughs> from China to Canada. Yeah. And so when I was applying, I was thinking, okay, there's no way they're going to have me. Like, I'm not, I wasn't, I wasn't an English major. I never like formally studied writing. Mm -hmm. Like I, English isn't my first language. There's no way they'll take me. And then they totally ended up taking me and I ended up doing (laughs) a great job. Uh, Like if I may say so myself, I had a great time teaching it. It was fun. And that just like gave me pause and made me think, um, like, like when I got the acceptance letter, um, I was hanging out with my husband and I said out loud, incredulously, like they want me to teach writing. And he laughed at me so hard. And yeah. ever since then, anything that I applied to, he would just be like, really? They want you, you? for that? Oh. Yeah. It would be a good reminder that, okay, there are times when I don't think I can get something and then I can. So yeah. it's, um, so I wonder are there opportunities that I didn't go for because I had mm-hmm. imposter syndrome? Probably. Um, yeah. And I'm glad that I took some leaps that I really didn't feel confident about because those ended up take, leading to really meaningful and fulfilling experiences. Exactly. So, so yeah. like, along the lines of what your husband said, you they want you. I think that's more of like sarcasm with him yeah. Im- implying he's implying like of course they want you cuz you're so qualified yeah. and that's the thing and yeah. then like this is a hun- another another layer of it i feel like but like um i i don't i don't know if that's like the correct term but i even to myself like i have some kind of degree of like internalized racism to myself it's like, ah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's okay. like, oh, God, like, yes, I was born in Canada, born and raised 1995 baby born in Toronto, oh, Mississauga, mm-hmm. Ontario, but you know, and, and mm-hmm. sometimes like, yeah, even in English, English class in high school, um, I, I would second guess myself because like, I'm clearly not going to be a good essay writer just because like I'm Asian uh-huh. I feel like I'm supposed to be good at math I'm supposed to be good at uh-huh. physics so yeah. I'm not sure if you ever experienced that yourself because you literally said like yeah I'm a I'm a first first generation immigrant yeah I'm Chinese who just came here when I was 10 like they want me to teach English so I think that to that degree you might have experienced some kind of racism towards yourself too Absolutely. I think that's such a good point. And I think you described it perfectly with this internalized racism. Um, And I think we do that to ourselves. And it kind of, it's a double whammy because either I'm supposed to be good at math. um, So why am I not like (laughs) excellent at math? Or why did I not get 100% on this math test? Um, And at the same time, like I'm supposed to be good at math and not good at English. So I, I bet I won't do well in this, you know, essay writing contest or whatever. Exactly. So it goes both ways and you can't yeah. win, you know, like if yeah. you really internalize that, it, it's just, it hamstrings you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think you, you totally hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. And um, kind of with myself, I kind of hit a point as well. I think it was, it was probably a little bit later in university where I also realized that, or I think one of my friends brought it up in conversation once she's like christine 
you you do realize you're the most whitewashed Asian person there is, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, what? What do you mean? Like, it's one of those things where I, in that moment, I realized that when people look at me, the first thing they realize is not that I'm Asian. I'm Christine. <laughs> So mm, so why why am I trying to be stressed out of the fact that I look a certain way when other people yeah. that's not the first thing that they see. Um yeah. I can't speak for like employers and stuff but even to, I don't know what it's like in the states now but like, even in Canada I think like we're we're at this wonderful place in society where again it's more about who you are what what your qualifications are rather than the race I feel like. Um Still some blips, but yeah. That's a beautiful and optimistic way of looking at it. And I I think it may really be more true in Canada. Unfortunately, I think in the States, (laughs) there's still a lot of prejudice and discrimination and, you know, like internalized and externalized and and everything. Really, eh? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's unfortunate. I mean, like, it's better than before, I think. Uh, but it certainly, it certainly still exists. And I think that's the toughest thing about the intersection between imposter syndrome and racism or prejudice, because like in a way, if you're a minority and you have imposter syndrome, you're not entirely wrong because you are at a disadvantage, but that disadvantage does not necessarily reflect your actual capabilities and your actual capability like quality as a person exactly but rather it may accurately at least in part reflect society's reaction to you so it is a bit more of an uphill battle um and actually i'll throw in one more uh research finding go for it yeah this is so fascinating they so what they did was look at um ethnic minority faculty members at University. So these people have already made it, right? They've gotten their PhDs, they've gotten their academic jobs, they exactly. are, they have succeeded. And um, the finding was that they inadvertently, with their own internalized sort of maybe stereotypes about minorities, they ended up passing that on yeah. to people they were mentoring, not on purpose, but people they were mentoring ended up feeling more imposter syndrome. Um, I, I almost wonder if it's like a role modeling thing where if these faculty are still experiencing in imposter syndrome, even though they've actually made it, mm-hmm. their mentees can sort of uh, feel that, right? They can pick up on that and they can end up internalizing that too. So it's unfortunate, but it's it's a bit of a, you know, um, inherited generational yeah. thing. Yeah, th- that's, yeah, that's really interesting because... Uh, if you think about it, I guess during their PhDs or when they're when you're with your mentor, it's not that long period of a time, right? It's not like your parents who shape you for 18 years. It's like just right. a very temporary time in your life when you're doing your grad work. So even the, the effects are that strong. <laughs> so that's yeah. that's really interesting. I'm not sure if anybody's looking into that in terms of, I guess, I, I guess uh, you, you said it's not part of the DC, DSM, right? No, it's not. It's not part of the DSM because. Uh, yeah, what's the reason for that? It, well, the reason is that the DSM really only wants to include things that um, 
they're trying to be as economical as possible with the number of diagnoses. So if something like imposter syndrome can fall under the category of depression, they're not going to make a separate category for it. That would make sense. Yeah. So if someone has imposter syndrome, that's sort of just one flavor of how depression and or anxiety symptoms can manifest. And also not to say that everybody who has imposter syndrome has depression or anxiety. It's just, it's a pattern of behaviors and thinking. And if it's severe enough and it's interfering enough with your life, then that could be categorized as uh you know, a DSM thing. Before calling you, I was reading how imposter syndrome, it affects um, pretty much everybody. And we we did mention Mm -hmm. the previous study talked about for a lot of female medical students, but it seems to affect everybody. And it doesn't really favor people who are more successful or less less successful, like at any stage of success in life, people are prone to it. So that is just so prevalent. (laughs) Yeah, it's so yeah. interesting. And yeah. I've heard people say, like, once I get uh, into grad school, I won't have imposter syndrome anymore. Or once yeah. I get my PhD, or once I get my tenure track job. Mm. Um, but it's not really, imposter syndrome is not really about reaching a milestone that can cure it. It's yeah. it's a pervasive pattern of thinking and behaviors, like we've been saying. So you know, if someone wants to get rid of their imposter syndrome, it's about changing the the way they, they behave now rather yeah. than waiting for some milestone. Yeah. Because I think if you were to replace imposter syndrome with um, something else, because I, I don't know, with me personally, um, I always think like, oh, yeah, like once I'm done high school, I'm, I'm going to be happier. Happier isn't like, you know, I'll be less stressed out. I'll have more time to do things. And then, you know, you you reach undergraduate and you finish your bachelor's and then the next thing comes and like, oh, wait, when am I going to start my life? When am I going to be, when am I going to be happy? And like, whatever it is. But uh, again, I also, the more, the more, I guess, senior people I talk to, it's just like, uh, you just got to adapt. It's not, it, it kind of gets better in its own way, but you have to kind of reframe the way you define your own success, happiness, Mm -hmm. and I guess your, your standards. So I feel like a lot of us, you know, people in like just Western culture in general, we're just, a lot of us are just chasing something without knowing like what we're chasing. And we expect that once we reach that milestone, we'll, our, all of our problems will be fixed. But that seems to be on yeah. the contrary. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and isn't it interesting? Notice how what you described there kind of maps onto what you described with your like childhood experience where, yeah. you know, whatever you achieved, there was a higher standard or yeah. like a next goal post, right? So I think we get conditioned to think that way, to think that if only we could get to that next step, we will be satisfied with ourselves. We will be proud. We will, um, you know, finally stop doubting ourselves. And you're right. I think that sort of way of approaching life only feeds into imposter syndrome and feeds into perfectionism and um, lack of fulfillment. So The way I like to think about it is, you know, instead of being goal oriented, what if we're value oriented, values oriented? What does that mean? Yeah. So values are like the overarching um, 
principles that we that we choose for our lives. Mm-hmm. So, for example, some people value being honest. Some people value being kind, or some people value uh, artistic creativity. There's you know a million different things that you can choose for yourself as a life value. Yeah. And the way I like to think about the difference between values versus goals is that, like, if you're if you're sailing a boat on the ocean. The goals are like the islands on the horizon that you, you can get to. Okay. Um, whereas your values are like the North Star. You'll never get there. There's not like a time when you can just cross the North Star off your, you know, got their list. Yeah. Uh, but it points you in the right direction so that you are sailing in a way that's meaningful to you, that's fulfilling to you. So that it's not so much about getting to that island. It's about the journey and it's about how you're sailing and which mm-hmm. direction Mm-hmm. And that way you constantly have an opportunity to be fulfilled and satisfied because whether you're at the island or not, you're doing, you're doing something that is value consistent. Yeah. Um, whereas if you only care about getting to the island and you don't care about values and pointing in the right direction, then you're only happy when you're briefly on the island until you, you feel like you have to get to the next one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I really encourage my patients to, um, it, you know, if they feel like they're just chasing goals and chasing to-do lists and not feeling very fulfilled that way, I really encourage them to take a step back and think about what are my values? Like what, you know, when I'm a hundred years old and I'm looking back on my life and writing yeah. my autobiography, what are the main themes that I want this book to be about? And those are the things that you want to be spending time on and putting your effort into. Um, I want to say that analogy was perfection. Uh, (laughs) You made it seem that that it just totally made sense. And as younger 20 something, I'm 24. And a lot of Uh all of my friends are around the same age here that I think hearing that is critical because we're at this point in our lives where we are kind of developing the moral compass. Yeah. Uh, a lot of us are getting our first job. Some of us are like mm-hmm. thinking about what we're going to do after school. You know, what kind of business do you want to own? What kind of doctor do you want to be? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like even with like in the chiropractic profession itself, it's like, mm-hmm. how do you want to practice? That's like, you know, um, I guess in a way where you can like sustain a business if you choose to open your business, but how can you also provide like the, the best standard of care for your patients as possible? Yeah, right. And absolutely. a lot of people, once they graduate, they're just out there trying to make as much money as they can. They mm-hmm. might do some, I don't want to say less ethical things, who knows, right? Or they join a practice that's maybe less ethical. And mm-hmm. it's just like, how do you navigate your life without a moral compass. So I guess not, this is me giving advice to people my own age, right? What I've been told is when you set up your moral compass, definitely have mentors, um, have people who you respect, people who are successful and in in that little field that you're in Mm -hmm. and um, someone you can kind of, someone who can kind of like hold you accountable if you kind of slip away. And just having a good support system too, whether it's like your friends, your partner, your family being like, hey, that you're, you know, you're, you're not being true to yourself, you know, or then they can kind of slap you back on, on the right path. But, yeah. but I think yeah. in terms of 
I, I can imagine what you do recommend to your patients, like kind of finding those values as opposed to island hopping with the goals. Uh-huh. Um, that's definitely probably not the key to happiness, Doc, but like probably uh, a good place to start, eh? Yeah, I think, yeah, that that is a good place to start because you're you're not done just by knowing what your moral compass is or what your values are. The The real joy and fulfillment comes from living by that and sort of constantly aligning yourself to your values and again not not with a destination in mind but to but to constantly sort of self-improve or to or to discover and to create in a way that's consistent with the values I love what you said about having mentors because I think those are the people who um, have experience they can see maybe from a higher altitude because they've maybe made the same mistakes already and they've yeah. gone through the the ringer and they are the people that you can brainstorm your values with and you can tell them you know if you identify a mentor you trust you can tell them i think these are my values um yeah. and then when they catch you sort of being doing more island hopping they can help to remind you like are you choosing this internship because uh, you know, of of num- the number of prestige points or the number of dollars, or yeah. are you choosing this internship because it fulfills your values of X, Y, Z? Yeah. Um, and by the way, money is not an invalid value. You can absolutely value, you know, material comfort yeah. and financial um, uh, stability. I think yeah. those are totally valid. Yeah. Um, it, it's just important for someone to know, like, do I want money for the sake of money or do I want money in order to achieve these other values that are really my true yeah. values? Like yeah. I love to travel. So therefore I need enough money to travel. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah. just knowing really what your values are is a good place to start. Yeah. And just, uh, just to kind of jump on what you said about money. It, my dad, mm-hmm. again, Asian dad, He's like, mm-hmm. do you think you're going to be happy with $5 in your pocket um, when, you know, your kids are begging you for food? <laughs> I guess like his, <laughs> point, his point was, do you honestly think you would be happy without money or rather mm-hmm. money is not a source of happiness? But I, d- I did like what you said there. Like, I think money is just a means of access, right? It's a right. means yeah. of it's a means of getting to a place where you, you are able to, again, support yourself, make yourself comfortable for, you know, in order for you to help other people and kind of, yeah. if you're, if you're a psychologist, if you're a chiropractor, if you're a medical doctor, like you need, you need to sustain yourself so you can do other things in the world too. Right. So uh, that's, yeah, that's a sure. whole nother thing. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. But back to our little questions list here. That was a great tangent, by the way. Um, yeah. Let's see. Uh, I guess in, there's no DSM criterion for imposter syndrome, doc, but like, are there, I guess, I don't want to say signs and symptoms, but there are, are there signs and symptoms that people should look out for or notice if they think they have imposter syndrome or if some, something they notice in their friend? Sure. Yeah. I think if you feel paralyzed by, uh, fear to reach out for opportunities, if you are holding back from participating, if you are um, so, uh, you know, caught up in wondering whether you belong somewhere or, or so caught up in self-doubt that it's interfering with your 
ability to thrive and to really engage, um, then that's a pretty good sign that you have imposter syndrome. And, you know, if, if everybody else around you seems to think you're, you belong there, but you don't, that's also a good sign that you have imposter syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah and just yeah. like, you know, being plagued by self-doubt, being, uh, being hesitant to take risks, I think is a big sign. Yeah. Um, and if you catch yourself doing behaviors like really hedging what you say, um, like walking back your opinions, uh, um, kind of ceding the spot to other people, like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, my my opinion doesn't really count. Listen to what this other person has to say. Yeah. If you're constantly finding yourself doing that, then that may <laughs> that's a good sign of imposter yeah. syndrome. Yeah. So I guess track what you're doing and listen to what other people tell you too. So, yeah. so that's, that, that's actually a really good, really good heads up. And um, I, I guess during this, throughout this whole podcast, I guess we kind of talked about like tips and tricks or rather um, advice for management or intervention when it comes to imposter syndrome. But do you have any specific tips, Dr. Wu, when it comes to maybe, let's say my friend's hearing this and she's struggling with it? Yeah, um, I think one thing, even just knowing about imposter syndrome, I think can help a little bit. Uh, but I would say start with fake it till you make it. I don't really like that. <laughs> phrase. It, it sounds fake. Um, but really what that <laughs> phrase means is start with behavior change yeah. rather than thought change or emotion change. Because if we could snap our fingers and think differently, that that would be great. But, you know, it's not so easy to change ingrained ways of thinking and, and habits of, of thought. And, and we can't change our emotions either. Yeah. Um, but we can change our behaviors. We can always act more confident and reach out for opportunities, apply for things that we weren't going to apply for, raise your hand and say something in class, volunteer yeah. for, you know, initiatives. You can still do those things, even if you're not feeling like uh, very confident about it. And you know what? The confidence, the thoughts and everything will follow your behavior because essentially you're giving yourself opportunities to gather data, uh, data points that show that actually you do know what you're doing. You yeah. do belong there. Um and not to mention, you know, when we avoid things that we are anxious about, we actually become more anxious about them over time. So avoidance exactly. is like the main engine of maintaining anxiety. Yeah. So what's the opposite of avoiding is reaching out, engaging, jumping in, you know, both feet. Um, <laughs> so yeah, my best advice is to just think if I were magically confident Uh, what would I do? Or identify a person in your life who is really confident and say, you know, what would so-and-so do Mm -hmm. in this situation? And then just do that. Um, And sometimes it won't work. Sometimes you won't get that job or you, you will like say something silly or, Mm -hmm. or whatever. And that's okay because really successful people who don't have imposter syndrome also do those things. They also fail. They also miss out on opportunities. They also gaff. Um, so like, you know, welcome to the ranks of, of how, how successful people work. So it's just keep in mind that it's okay to, uh, not be perfect. Um, but just the fact that you're doing it is already huge and that's already helping you not have imposter syndrome. 
And that's, that's the first step. And uh, what you said kind of reminded me what my friend said too. It's like, don't compare your day one to like someone's day 1000 or day 300. You know what I mean? It's like, whether it's on social media, like, yeah, they have a 12 pack ab, they have double six pack abs, but you know, they've (laughs) been been working out for also like 10 years. Right. So you can't compare your like day two after doing three sit-ups to their um, 12 pack (laughs) abs. So that, that's a really good point that you mentioned there, doc. So um, this would be a wonderful place to take a little bit of an intermission break, Doc. And then I have just, I have more, some more questions for you quickly before you go. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah, sure. Okay. Hi, welcome to the intermission segment of the Biotonal Podcast. This is where typically advertisements, sponsor plugs are put in a podcast. But currently, we have zero sponsors. So I'm just going to use this time to say thank you for tuning in, guys. And we would also really appreciate it if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also, follow us across all the socials at Bitonal Podcast. If you have any ideas, feedback, comments, advice, stories you want to share, drop us a line at bitonalpodcast at gmail.com. That's all I really have to say. Okay, back to the main segment. Okay, and we're back. Hi, Dr. Jade. Hi. All right. So in this kind of second segment of the podcast, I kind of wanted to know a little bit about yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, You are a professor at Duke University, like you said, right? I, I'm not a professor, actually. Yeah. I'm uh, my official title is clinical associate mm-hmm. uh, and research associate currently. Yes. Um, how about you tell your own story, Doc? Like, how did you start pursuing? <laughs> sure. Uh, I, I know. I know. Do you also do? Are you a sleep therapist too, Doc? Or yeah, yeah. I can explain how all of those different roles kind of there. You go. You go run for together. It. Um, <laughs> so basically, I am a PhD clinical psychologist, which means that I went to grad school and got a PhD in clinical psychology, which is a regular PhD where you know you do research, you take courses, you write a dissertation, and all of that. And and for this particular type of degree, in addition to the research uh, and academic component, you also learn to do clinical work. Um, So I started out focusing on anxiety and mood disorders in my early grad school career. And then I really got more and more interested in sleep um, for, I think, a few reasons. I think the, Mm -hmm. the sort of forefront official reason is that sleep problems are just so prevalent in any sort of psychopathology that you see, and particularly in anxiety and and depression. Um, And so every patient I had, everywhere I looked, it just seemed like sleep was a barrier. Um, And I also started to learn that you can actually treat sleep really well using behavioral strategies. And that just seemed to me like a really nice low-hanging fruit, uh, like a transdiagnostic 
issue that if we could solve that, we mm-hmm. would raise the water for all boats. Like if we could get everyone sleeping better, then, you know, there would be fewer people with depression, fewer people with anxiety. So I just got really you know, bitten by the sleep bug, I guess. Um, so I started doing research on sleep. Um, I started uh, trying to get some uh, training and sleep therapy. So yeah. I started doing clinical rotations and uh, under people who, you know, do sleep work. And ultimately I ended up at Duke for internship year, mm-hmm. which in our is a one-year full-time clinical thing. It's kind of equivalent to residency, but it's mm-hmm. um, it's just one year. I finished that up at Duke, and I did a clinical fellowship after that, also yeah. at Duke, focusing specifically on sleep and on perinatal mood disorders, so pregnant and postpartum um, women uh, yeah. suffering from anxiety and depression. And so currently I mostly do research. I spend uh, 30 hours a week technically doing sleep research. I'm looking at um, how improving insomnia could potentially improve cardiovascular risk uh, factors and uh, and some other uh, research related to sleep here and there. Yeah. Um, and then 10 hours um, at Duke, I see patients in the sleep clinic. Um, yeah. And let's see what, what other questions were there? Uh, uh, like uh, what, was, what made you interested uh-huh. in psychology in the first place? Oh yeah. Uh, I, it's funny when I went to university, I would, I was going to be a double major in math and economics. Whoa. And that was my mom's idea. Uh, <laughs> and I did, I liked economics and I liked math. Um, and I figured, okay, this combination should set me up well for, you know, jobs or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I took Psych 101 and I fell in love with it. And actually <laughs> the person teaching Psych 101 at Cornell when I was there uh, happened to specialize in sleep. So yeah. that was another sort of seed that was planted early on. Yeah. Um, and he spoke so passionately and so infectiously about sleep and psychology that I just got really um, pulled in. And yeah. so I, I joined a psychology lab, started doing some undergrad research, took more and more courses. And, you know, by I think by second year, I was like fully decided I was going to be a psychology major. So I guess um, you switched, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't think <laughs> I ever officially declared math and econ, but I took all okay. the and stuff like that. But yeah. yeah, I mean, psychology was just so fun that I kind of just took a leap and, and did that. And I knew that it would be, once I switched to psychology, it was like either I had to do grad school or like do something unrelated to psychology for mm-hmm. a job because there's not too much you can do with just an undergrad degree in psych. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it just felt really natural to me that I would go to grad school for psychology at some point. And I wanted to do a clinical psychology degree as opposed to, uh, you know, cognitive or social or biosocial right. bio- psych because I wanted to have this clinical training so that I could keep more doors open yeah. and I can always do clinical work in addition or instead of yeah. um, traditional academic work. And exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of my professional yeah, journey. And yeah. And you do private practice too on top of everything. So that's wonderful. 
<laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yes. it's a very small private practice just yeah. on Saturdays right now. No, and like again, you probably love it. That's why you keep it going, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So as a clinical psychologist and a and a researcher and all these things, uh, do you have that this is kind of the existential question I ask everybody, but do you have a specific vision for the world? Like, I guess, do you yeah. I, one of the like you mentioned, because sleep is such like a a, a big factor in other yeah. disorders. Like, what's yeah. your vision for the future? Everyone's sleeping better, probably, right? Uh, that would be great. That would be the <laughs> dream. Uh, no pun intended. Um, yeah. But, wow. Uh, yeah, I know that Amazing. was that was, that too, was easy. too good. <laughs> too good. Um, I think yeah. maybe even more specifically, my vision is to is for the the overall public health um, messaging about sleep to be more accurate, more evidence based, and more helpful. Mm. Um, not only to overall improve people's sleep, but especially to close the gap in health disparities that we see. Because right now. Uh, you know, poorer patients, racial and ethnic minority patients, um, and gender and sexual minority patients have a harder time accessing, you know, sleep healthcare. And whether it's because they're not getting referred by mm-hmm. primary care or they don't have the resources to even go to primary care or go to see a specialist, there's just so many factors getting in the way that causes quite a bit of healthcare disparities. And yeah. plus things like poverty and and stress from racism and, and all of these things negatively affect sleep. Yeah. So I see sleep as like a almost like a baseline linchpin of all mental and physical health. I know that's my bias, but there's at least I think there's a little bit to that idea. And so if we could bring equity and justice to sleep health, I think we will go a long way and bring equity and justice to healthcare and to people's well-being overall. So that's my yeah. vision. And that's I would yeah. I, I fully I fully agree. I fully agree. Yeah. Um I, I know like even for us, it's like we ask about blood pressure, we ask about range of motion, uh-huh. we ask about all these things, but like why doesn't why is there no solid outcome measure for sleep and how do we pro- yeah. monitor sleep in the patient? So oh, yeah, totally. that sounds yeah. like a really good that's a good, and I guess that's your personal goal too, doing what you're doing. So yeah, that's why I do the podcast, yeah. do the blog, yeah. and you know. Thank things. you, thank oh, you for sure. all the things that you do, Doc. Oh well, thank you for saying that. That's really sweet. Yeah. Um, no, um, yeah, I, I've been a fan of the Savvy Psychologist for a long time. You're mm-hmm. the current host for it. So, do you want to give the the podcast listeners? kind of links and handles and like could you tell them where they can find you dog sure yeah so the podcast is called the savvy psychologist um you can find it you know wherever you listen to podcasts and the icon is like a like a little purple thing yeah, it's um, a little light bulb yeah yeah exactly yeah. um and on twitter you can follow me i have sort of a, a podcast related Twitter handle, which is at QDT Savvy Psych, which mm-hmm. stands for Quick and Dirty Tips Savvy Psych. Um, or you can follow me personally where I talk more about sleep uh, specific things at, um, at Jade Wu PhD. So J-A-D-E-W-U PhD. 
Um, and I also have a website which offers some resources and sort of points you in, in interesting directions, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's jadewuphd.com. Um, and what yeah. else? I think that's it for now. Yeah. And guys, if you didn't catch that, I'm definitely going to put it on the description box. So um, you can find Dr. Jade wherever you'd want to check her out. Okay. Yeah. So um, thank you. Dr. Jade, for You're joining very us. Welcome. It was it was yeah. a pleasure, more than a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you so much. It was really fun for me too. I'm really yeah. glad you invited me on the show. I yeah. really I'm honored and I appreciate your time. Yeah, likewise. Okay. So thank you on behalf of the Biotonal Podcast, Dr. Jade, and uh have a good day, listeners. Okay, so some housekeeping details before I let you go. Uh, I'm going to be taking some time off on All Things Podcast for the remainder of the year. Episode 5 will be released um, on January the 7th, 2020. Uh, We got exams and stuff for school, but, you know, your girl's super organized, so things are queued up and ready to go. Things are going to be Um, progressing as planned. Um, Yeah, it's going to be a special one. And I think it'll be a good way to start off the year with a bang. Um, One word hint here, BuzzFeed. So stay tuned. I wish all of you a wonderful holiday season. Merry Christmas if you're into that stuff. Spend some time with your loved ones and those you hold dear, please. Time is valuable, they say. I'll see you guys in 2020. Cheers to another year filled with world peace, prosperity, and love. Bye, guys. Thank you.